Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and with me today, as in every edition of these podcasts, is my friend and professional sparring partner, the author and fund manager, Peter Simon. In this series of 10 podcasts, we will be discussing a number of the big themes that are currently preoccupying the financial markets, in which we have both been professionally involved for the best part of four decades. A tour of duty that prompted us to choose, very much tongue-in-cheek, the title of this series. Are we wise or simply old and set in our ways? We leave you to decide. Peter, we've spent a couple of uh, episodes of the podcast talking about books that were very influential and we think have uh, broader messages for the world at large. Uh, this week we're going to move on. We're going to talk about a couple of films, the first one this week and the next one next week. And we're going to kick off with a film that uh, you've chosen uh, and perhaps you'd just like to uh, introduce it first of all and tell us what it is and uh, we'll get on to how it matters to us. Uh, after you've described what it is. Good morning, Jonathan. It's nice to be back online. And it's nice to discuss some films after we've discussed some books to get away a little bit from the financial markets. And the film that I have chosen today as a result of the question that you asked, which was, which film or films has had the greatest impression on you? So I've chosen this film called The Lives of Others, which is a German film whose original name was Das Leben der Anderen, by a prolific German director uh, called Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, who produced this film in 2006. And that's a long time ago. It took him three years at least to produce this film. It's set in East Berlin. And it is all about life at the time on the other side of the Berlin Wall, the Iron Curtain. What was interesting about that film was that it takes place in 1984, which was five years before the Berlin Wall was dismantled. And so it must have been at the absolutely worst time of deep East German communism and also communism on the eastern side of the Iron Curtain. And of course, at that time, in 1984, there was no sign of, let's say, perestroika or glasnost. And the Stasi, which was the equivalent and the same thing as the Gestapo, reigned supreme. So that's the first impression, and then the film goes into a lot of detail, which we can discuss. What was your impression of the film, Jonathan? I first saw this film when it uh, came out and was very struck by it, uh, because it was actually, as, as I recall, it was one of a, about a time in 2004, 2005, 2006, where there's a whole series of films coming out of Germany about German history, and it seemed to be the moment when they started to come to terms with it. And I remember uh, the um, the film Downfall about the last days of Hitler and so on. Um, but yes, it was absolutely fascinating. And of course, we had some knowledge of what the Stasi was up to, but we really had no idea about the scale of it and about some of the implications of what it was like to live under that kind of regime, which is basically built on surveillance of, of anybody who has any kind of suspicious, uh, as the authorities would see it, any kind of... Uh, 
threat to the the order of the uh, the communist regime in in the German Democratic Republic. So I thought it was it was very striking, and of course it's it's a very fine film and very very uh, moving as well. Um, so yeah, it made a big impact on me, and uh, I'm not surprised you've chosen it. It's a great film, which I think went on to win an Oscar for uh, for best foreign film. Well, if you look up Florian Henkel Donnersmark, uh, it not only gives you the uh, the numerous awards for this film. It's not not just one Oscar, but lots of others like Golden Globe and all and all that. You know, you lose count. But also the other couple of films that he made, because he had didn't make very many films, as far as I can make out, he did four short stories and three full-length movies, but they all seem to have got awards left, right and center. And when you listen in to an interview with him, you can understand why he's very interesting as a character. He went to Oxford, lived in New York, speaks five languages fluently, including Russian. He's a very intelligent man with very interesting observations. And so I'm not surprised that he produced a film where he was particularly keen that all the details that you see on the screen are all details as they were at the time, which is why it took him so long to make. He had to make sure that every single square inch of the screen contained original material. And I'm not just talking about the drab architecture. Incidentally, Jonathan, a couple of weeks ago, we discussed the drabness of that sort of architecture compared with the architecture in Kenneth Clark's civilization book, which impressed us so much and which we discussed. But how this drab architecture and depressing uh, these, de these buildings were all part of this terror regime. I mean, for me, a terror regime is a regime which terrorizes its citizens. And terrorization means to scare the citizens. And so in that sense, having drab architecture plays its part. And the Trabant cars and all these things, that was all original stuff. The fact that you had something like 200,000 whistleblowers who spied on each other, uh, which meant that you never knew when you were safe or when you were in danger, including in your own home, sitting at your own table with your own family members. That, to me, is proper terrorism. There's an obvious link back to you know George Orwell and uh, and and 1984 and Big Brother and everything and that was indeed part of the the Stasi's uh, uh, technique of course as you say it was to was to spy on people and not only that uh, I think create a, an atmosphere in which you therefore became everybody was suspicious of everybody else and they were afraid that they were being spied on by everybody and of, of course they did not know the extent of it I don't think at the time. And I thought that was one of the interesting things about the film you mentioned about the director was that I think he was 16 at the time of the Berlin Wall came down and his parents lived in East Germany um, or had lived in East Germany originally, maybe, I think. Um, and that therefore, in a way, this is his sort of coming to terms with what it actually was like in that uh, thinking back on his family's past uh, and what it must have been like to go to live through that experience before the Berlin Wall came down. And his family were big landowners in Eastern well, in East Germany and beyond, but on the other side of the curtain. And, of course, they, like so many others, were completely expropriated. And so I think you're right. It, it, he would be able to draw on the experiences of his family, 
uh, in order to get a, a flavor of what it was like. You mentioned 1984. I wonder if it's a coincidence that this film depicts life in East Berlin in 1984. And I wonder whether it's a coincidence with um, George Orwell's 1984. That's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to that. It might be a sort of subtle answer to that question. We will need to discuss in a minute how much has actually changed today. You mentioned surveillance, and surveillance was writ large at the time. If you remember towards the end of the film, when the wall had already come down, and when the archives were open to the public and where any member of the public could go in and ask for the archives relating to himself and where he could go through the files and he could see exactly who had ratted on him, who had spied on him. Because, of course, with the meticulous German uh, efficiency, they kept all these files and then they opened it to the public. And I remember that that caused a lot of anxiety. And if you like, it caused a lot of friction within the population and again within families because these families found out that the loyal and trusted, I don't know, cousin or brother or whatever it is, was in fact a Stasi spy. And so it strikes one how uh, the extent of the terrorism that this regime was able to inflict upon its citizens. I, I guess we should perhaps just briefly describe what the plot of the film is. It's about a, it's about a writer who uh, discovers in the course of his film at some point that his, that his girlfriend is in fact an informant for the Stasi or has been forced to become an informant of the Stasi. That's a, a sort of slightly ambiguous feature of the film. And it's really a story of how the 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 Stasi employee who is who is being paid and employed to survey him, if you like, to keep him under surveillance, uh, how he actually reacts to that unfolding uh, surveillance. I mean, that's is that a is that a fair summary of the of the plot as far as you're concerned? Yes, and then there's a if you like the trigger was when the one of the main characters, the author, the boyfriend of that poor troubled girlfriend who kills herself in the end, how he manages to get a, an article out to the West, uh, into the, to the editor of the Spiegel, in which he writes that apart from Hungary, East Germany, the GDR, was the country with the highest number of suicide rates. And he was able to smuggle that article out and it was published the following month and caused furore. And of course, the East German authorities didn't know who wrote it. And um, I don't think that they ever discovered it in the end. So it was a heroic thing to do, very risky, but of course, with lots of terrible, tragic personal circumstances. That's the main, if you like, story of the plot. But what was a very interesting side story was how the main interrogator, the man who sat upstairs with his earphones on and listened in to the conversation between uh, between the author and his girlfriend, how he, bit by bit, week by week, finally succumbed to his guilt and 
turned the corner, if you like, and went onto the other side at his own risk and peril, and in the end actually saved our hero, the author. He saved him from prison torture and all the other things that they did. So that, of course, at a price, and the price was the suicide of his beloved girlfriend who was, if you like, tortured herself by her guilty conscience. And I found, Jonathan, that every time I watch that film, I've seen it three or four times, there is some new little detail which impressed me so much and which made me realize what a terrible life those poor people must have suffered at the time. Absolutely. I think that comes across very clearly. And as you say, together with the, uh, you know, the drab uh, environment in which there are, which you say is very realistic. I do know that. I remember when I was uh, very young, I had an opportunity. My father was in the Air Force and we went to um, Checkpoint Charlie in, uh, in Berlin while it was still a divided city and uh, was able to look across into East Germany. And boy, was the contrast between what was West Berlin and East Berlin uh, boy, was that clear the term, the drabness, the, the the awful buildings, and the and the grayness which comes through very much in the film, in the way the directors have set up the the coloring of the film. It's very, very grey. It's very kind of uh, drab. It does convey the uh, the atmosphere very well. Um, and yes, of course, it's a very interesting story about, um, as I saw it anyway, uh, about the the difficult position into which people are put when they live in this kind of society. You know, it's the same okay, issue as about you know, collaborators in the war. After the war, if you're being on the right side, everything is uh, is fine. But if you're not, it exposes the difficulty which ordinary people are put by being asked to do things which in their conscience they feel uh, unable to do or unwilling to do. But you have to be very heroic in a country like East Germany to put your head above the parapet and protest or whatever because you knew you would be taken away and probably uh, got rid of. So uh, I thought it was very good at bringing out the ambiguity of this, of this situation, which you know, good people are put in difficult circumstances and how they react. Uh, I thought it was very well, uh, very well done. And little personal, private heroics and stories, and everyone had a story to tell. I'm interested that that you um, that you mentioned that you stood at Checkpoint Charlie. I'll, I'll tell you in a minute about my own experiences with with Checkpoint Charlie. But before I do. I found also very interesting, not that this comes out in the film at all, but it's a fact that when the Iron Curtain was erected and East Germany was created, of course, a lot of old Nazis, members of the National Socialist Party, high-ranking Nazi officials, actually transformed themselves into high-ranking SED officials. The SED was the communist version of the Nazi party. Not that there was that much difference, by the way, between the National Socialist Party and the Communist Party, because they were both very extreme. They meet in infinity, and their methods were very similar. You could see that by the heavy-handed Stasi tactics, which were no different from the heavy-handed uh, Gestapo tactics. Um, and that's what's so depressing, because you end the, the Second World War and you think that there's a sigh of relief only to find yourself in a just as bad a situation. The contrast between West Berlin and East Berlin could not have been greater, as you said yourself. Well, in 1981, I was working in the city of London and I was sent to West Berlin for some banking business and I had a few hours off. It happened twice, in fact. 
And I thought, well, why not? I'll just go to East Berlin. I didn't think that there was any particular risk. So I went to Checkpoint Charlie and I walked across the border. Walking across the border was a lot more difficult than it sounds because you had to hand in your passport to a man in a uniform who sat in a little hut and you had no idea whether you were ever going to get that passport back. So there was a certain degree of of risk, which I wasn't too aware of. Got my passport back, went through and found myself in East Berlin. Having seen all the films, John le Carré and all that, Funeral in Berlin and The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And it was exactly like that, except it was much worse. I remember walking into a cafe, a big coffee house, very big, full of people who were sitting at tables. And what immediately struck me when I walked in there is that contrary to today, when you walk into a big coffee house, everyone is talking in a loud voice and so on. You can't hear yourself. Those people were all huddled together and talking to each other in whispers. So I participated in that for a while. Then I went out again. And then I found a taxi rank. And I somehow was able to have a very old taxi driver. And I got into the car and I told him, look, I've got half an hour. Can you just drive me around and then come back here? So he drove me around and everywhere there were banners saying, long live our eternal friendship with the Soviet Union. And it went from drab to drabber. And this taxi driver at the beginning was very reluctant to talk. But uh, as time went on, I somehow managed to loosen his tongue. And in the end, in what I think was a great risk to himself, he lashed out in the most horrendous way against the East communist regime, what bastards and pigs they all were. And I have to say, I did admire the man for his courage, even if it was a little bit reckless on his part. And I then went to a concert. It was a co small concert somewhere in a concert hall. And then that ended my, my evening and I walked back across into, across Checkpoint Charlie into West Berlin. But I'll never forget that. The sheer despondency, the depression of those people was, was very influential on me. I'm sure. And it's, uh, it's in a way one wishes that everybody would have a chance to uh, see what that was like and uh, compare that with what people thought at the time. I don't think many people thought much of the East German uh, uh, state at that point. But it, we, I think, think many of us realised, again, quite how awful it was. And if we could somehow uh, convey that to people, I think that's one of the things that this film did very well, successfully. And I thought one of the other things, interesting things about it was the fact that the the actor who played the Stasi official, the one who turns out to, in the end, save the writer from his uh, otherwise what would have been a fairly grim fate, was himself uh, had some experience of, of the Stasi in his own life. He was, uh, he was uh, married to a woman who he believed, uh, and, and the record suggested, had actually been a Stasi informer. So he, he had that in his own household, if you like. Now, I admit that's rather controversial because he then got sued for libel and lost the case because the records were deemed to be unreliable. Uh, but it was very interesting that he came in as someone who was under surveillance by the Stasi to make the film and portray the Stasi official. Uh, that must have been an extraordinary experience uh, for him. Uh, and I think that gives the film a little bit of extra kind of resonance, if you know that. 
I think it gives it a lot more resonance. Uh, and you're right. And he was actually a prolific actor, Hans Ulrich Mühe, prolific actor. You can look him up and um, he did all sorts of films and theatres and everything, as was the other one, the author, uh, Sebastian Koch is called. They're all prolific actors. Um, what I want to ask you is, you were mentioning Big Brother in 1984 and you were mentioning the word surveillance. Now, today, you don't have people sitting in your loft with earphones having put um, wires into your apartment behind your back. But are we completely free today from that kind of state control and oppression? Or could you argue that today's surveillance is actually much, much easier than it was at the time and is actually happening all the time today? Is that something that you would think Are we free from that kind of oppression that existed and that prevailed at the time? Or is it still with us and we have to be just as careful when we make a phone call, when we write an email or when we write a letter? Do we have to be just as careful as we had to be or would have had to be at the time? Well, I think what you can say is certainly that the, the tools are there for such oppression to take place, such surveillance to take place. And indeed, it would be uh, the tools we now have because of the internet and, and so on. They are much more far-reaching and potentially far-reaching than they, they would have been if you relied on people having to rip walls apart and stick receivers in there. So yes, absolutely. Surveillance is there, definitely. And of course, if you remember Big Brother and uh, in Orwell's book, uh, you know, he does operate through, there's a kind of TV screen where he, he kind of controls your life. So, uh, yes, in one sense, we're not far from that. I mean, what we lack at the moment, fortunately, is, or at least we believe, the fact that governments are actually actively using this to try and control their citizens. Um, and, of course, that's a very uh, controversial and uh, very topical subject. Um, I don't think we need to worry particularly that uh, governments in the countries we live in are uh, actively looking at you and I, Peter, because we're making, you know, subversive comments about the nature of uh, democracy or governments these days. I don't think we, we have that problem. Um, but obviously, in other countries, there is that, that problem. Uh, we can see what happens in China, for example, where I think it's a very close parallel from what I understand, that uh, you have to be very careful living in China not to say things which are uh, in any way critical of the regime. Uh, and there will be somebody out there who is listening whether they're paid informants or whether they're just listening to your Alexa, you know, voice in the room, which has been <laughs> taken over to listen to everything you say, uh, the technology is definitely there. So, yes, I think one should be concerned. And I think it just means, you know, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. We've really got to be on top of that and very much make sure to the extent we can that we control the limits of how these technologies can be used. Yes, well... I don't know whether that puts me in a good mood or in a bad mood for the future, but I think you're totally right. We have to be vigilant at all times. And you mentioned China quite rightly. I would also mention Russia, I think, what's happened in Russia in the last few months and, well, years obviously as well. It doesn't make Russia a very sort of cozy place to live in and to speak freely. And I suspect that all this is going to go on until further notice. But I thought that discussing this film, The Lives of Others, at this time is a 
poignant reminder and makes one think about the extent to which we are living in a much freer society and freer world uh, than was the case at the time. In the last few weeks, Jonathan, you and I have actually talked about this sort of subject on various occasions. And it's nice that we were able to have this conversation now around a real work of art, because that film, with all the awards that it got, I think it deserved it. And if you look at the director, Florian Henkel Donnersmark, a little bit more closely, you can see why, with a very impressive character like that, who surrounds himself with very impressive actors, including his two subsequent films, um, I think that he can be considered as a great artist himself. And, and it's a very stimulating uh, exercise to watch such a great work of art, Jonathan. Indeed it is. I think it, it was a great film, or is a great film, and I strongly recommend people to watch it. I mean, I did think it was interesting, apropos, just to finish off on the surveillance issue, I mean, it was interesting that um, you know, the, the whistleblower Edward Snowden, you know, one who defected, uh, effectively defected to Russia, essentially, uh, for exposing secrets in the US. Uh, he said that was one of the film was actually one of the inspirations that made him act the way he did. Now, you may or may not agree with what he did. And, and if that, again, is a controversial subject. You know, but it is no doubt that the country with the most sophisticated uh, surveillance tools are the Americans. No question about it. And of course, we rely heavily on the fact that their motivation is benign rather than uh, malign. And I don't think anybody is suggesting that uh, that it isn't. But uh, he, Edward Snowden, you know, he did actually believe that it was his duty to expose the extent to which surveillance went on. So I think that is still a very relevant issue, as you say. Uh, and this film is, as you say, a very useful reminder that we enjoy our freedom by discretion. We have to make sure that we preserve the, the sanctity of our uh, democratic and uh, individual arrangements in society. I feel we could go on talking about this subject for a long, long time, which no doubt we will in the future. But we don't want to digress too much into other Indeed. fields. <laughs> Indeed. So... Well, next week we're going to be talking about another film. It's a film that I've chosen for a number of reasons. I don't think it's such a such a great film as uh, the one you've we've been talking about today, but it is. Um, I think it raises a lot of issues which are not actually that far removed from some of the issues we discussed today. And that film is uh, All the President's Men, the story about how the Washington Post exposed the Nixon and Watergate scandal. So we'll be talking about that next week. But thank you so much again, Peter, for our conversation. I will look forward to. Uh, to getting into that next. Thank you very much, Jonathan. I look forward to that too. So see you not next week, but the week after. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.